This is Footy Time with Daniel Andrews. And as always, I'm joined on the other line by Johnny Raff. How are you, Johnny? Yeah, not too bad, Dan. I'm kind of glad these buy rounds are now finally over. We can get back to normality. Um, but look, still a bit of good footy. Yeah, it was a little bit of a drag with only five games, but we still had a great game, especially on Friday night, which we'll be able to recap between Geelong and the Bulldogs. Yeah, it certainly did. So what caught your eye then? Um, yeah, I mean, it was it was a funny round, but uh, I think the main thing that caught my eye was uh, Matty DeBoer's tagging job on Sam Walsh in the GWS Carlton game. Um it was, you know, it was a good. He's a very good tagger, and he held Walsh to about six kicks, I think it was. But um, the key there for me was that they GWS identified Sam Walsh as Carlton's best player and decided to tag him rather than someone like a Crips or something. So, yeah, it's um, the footy world is uh, kind of telling Carlton what uh, what they think is the picking order. Yeah, I suppose that hadn't really been done before, had it? Choosing to tag Walsh instead of Cripps. Yeah, I don't think he's had a tag that close uh, in his career yet. And he's probably going to get a few more like that, I'd imagine. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I guess he didn't deal with it overly well, but most players don't early on. It's something they've really got to work through. It's a learning learning experience and uh, he'll be better for it. Yeah, so I guess it's just a bit of a nod to his All-Australian contention, the fact that He's the one that you might look to tag now. That's right. So for me, what caught my eye was actually Essendon's win. So that was the last game on Sunday. And uh, they did it the hard way. The Hawks were in that game pretty much the whole way. And just right at the end, Essendon managed to kick away. But uh, yeah, they did enough. And uh, the young guys are impressive again. And they're still competing for that last spot in the eight or last couple of spots. They do play some good games, those two teams, lately. I kind of expect it to be just a bit of a, a nothing game, but um, last couple of times there's sort of been a lot of energy and, you know, end-to-end action in those games and high scoring. So, yeah, not, not bad to watch. Yeah, I guess Hawthorne have picked up their act in the last couple of weeks, haven't they? So they had that good game against Sydney and they're getting a bit more going through the midfield, particularly with Tom Mitchell getting into a little bit of form. Yeah, and they're using him well too. So a little bit, I guess there's a thing with Hawthorne, you know, how many games do their supporters actually want them to win now? Because they probably want one of the top few draft picks as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's definitely the bare minimum I think their fans would be hoping for. So, yeah, get a few good picks and hopefully have another draft like that super draft they had with Franklin and Roughhead and some of the others. Yeah, so I guess going back to Essendon, they've got a few tough assignments in the next month. I think they play Melbourne and Geelong. So if they could find a way to win one of those games, then they'd be putting even more pressure on teams like Sydney and Richmond who are in the lower part of the eight. Yeah, for sure. All right, let's jump into game of the round. So this was the Friday night clash between Geelong and the Western Bulldogs down at Cadinia Park. So we talked about this in the It's Really Footy Time episode, me saying that I thought it was actually the Western Bulldogs who had the most to, uh, you know, gain or lose, most at stake here. And it was a huge top four clash going into this one. And, uh, yeah, was the question was, could Western Bulldogs stand up to what Geelong was going to dish up, who had been in great form at the moment? 
So let's jump into the first quarter. So it was actually a hugely stoppage-heavy opening with lots of pressure being exerted by both sides. So it was actually only one goal apiece at quarter time. The one goal the Bulldogs managed actually was courtesy of Libertore, who managed to make the most of a pretty poor Tom Stewart turnover coming out of defence. And going back the other way, Geelong's methodical ball movement ended with Isaac Smith delivering beautifully to Cameron, who was about 15 metres out, absolutely laced him out with a kick. So at quarter time, it was just one for 10 apiece. So the question that that raises for me, at least, is why was it so hard to score in this first quarter here, Johnny? <laughs> well, I, I, yeah, it's a very good question. I mean, I would have definitely expected a fair few goals on the board from both sides in the first quarter, the way that they were sort of going at it. But, um, yeah, I think that it was it was just a high-pressure game from the start. I mean, it really didn't it, – it was hard to, to sort of get clean breaks and and keep momentum and things like that. But, you know, there was a bit of an inaccuracy as well. But, yeah, it, it, it's a little bit unexplainable that that's going. I guess one thing is with so few goals, there weren't many opportunities to actually go back to the centre and reset mm. into – you know, more of an open style. So both teams were defending pretty well. And while each team did have five scoring shots, quite a few of those were just sort of, you know, never really going to be goals. So, yeah, it was a very tight and tough opening. Yeah, for sure. All right, let's jump into the second quarter now. So this is where the game really came to life. So both teams were trading blows and really were resembling top four teams. So it was actually the Bulldogs who managed to get three of the first four goals. But the Cats managed to respond late in the quarter with three goals in quick time to actually take a seven-point lead into the halftime break. So there's some really impressive stuff here from both teams, uh, whether it be just the control they were exerting or just making things happen when it looked like they didn't really have much space at all. So who do you reckon impressed you more in this first half here, Johnny? Yeah, really good question. Um, oh, it's hard. It's hard to say that one was better than the other. But I, 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 w- I thought the Bulldogs came to play. I thought they came down there. They weren't sort of being intimidated. They were taking the game on. Um, I think Liberatore had about sixteen touches by the start of early in the second quarter. They, they were really. Uh, he was getting. I think he was. Was he being tagged by O'Connor? I think. Um, the, he was getting off the chain. Whoever was tagging him, and yeah, I thought they really came to play. And um, I thought the Bulldogs actually impressed me more, if anyone. Yeah, so I guess it did look at stages in that second quarter that they were getting the game on their terms, and they were the ones in control. But Geelong did seem to have the answers. But they had the I guess That's all you can really ask for from a visiting team to Kidinia Park just being in the game and, you know, being able to exert some influence. It's often very hard for opposition teams to actually even be in the game down there. So yeah, they'll do it well. exactly. And especially in such a high-pressure game. So my second question here is, what makes Geelong so good? What do you reckon some of their main strengths are? So people have really been talking them up, particularly the last couple of weeks, uh, edging them towards thinking they're premiership favourites and all the rest of it, but... Uh, yeah, it is interesting to try and drill down and 
what actually makes them so good. So that's my question to you today. Yeah, yeah, it is a really good question, and it's worth drilling down into. Um, uh, but there's probably not one thing. Uh, obviously, there's never one thing. But the first thing I would think of is, um, they're all a lot of the players in that side are really good one-on-one players. I think, um, especially their backline. Um, and, and yeah, guys like Tom Stewart and that, they, they really, Tom Stewart to me is like, just, he's another Corey Enright pretty much for another 10 years, probably. Uh, he's just, uh, you know, you give him a role, he'll do it. And then some, he gets a lot of the ball himself. Um, very reliable, good team, man. That's exactly what Enright was like to me. Um, then there's, uh, yeah, the midfielders are all sort of good. Like, you know, Dangerfield's a great one-on-one player. Um, but, yeah, it's it's just a, they're very good at just doing their jobs and helping their teammates when they need to rather than, I guess, um, the approach of... I guess if you're playing sort of like a zone in that and you're sort of you're guarding your space and it's it's a different mindset. Uh, Geelong, even back to those premierships, were just really, really good at um, getting an assignment and just beating their man. So that's... That's one thing. I think they've also got great leadership, as we know, and the experience um, helps them to make the big plays in the big moments, just like that last 30 seconds when Selwood punched along the ground. And uh, I was really impressed with the Guthrie um, contest on pretty much the middle of the ground and how he just got to it and got that quick handball at the Smith. I was really impressed with that. Um, it's not the first time I've seen Geelong do that kind of stuff. So, And it's not a coincidence. So, yeah, it's... It's a few of those things, but the first thing, yeah, I would say is that probably just their ability to beat their man and, yeah. I'm not sure whether all Geelong supporters would agree with this, but one thing that really stood out to me is there wasn't really, like, a clear bottom six. So, and that's, you know, something that you can only say about really strong teams. Mm. Everyone's doing their role and doing it really well and sort of understanding it. So it does become hard to say, oh, yeah, you know, this guy is sort of someone who doesn't do as much or whatever. And I guess there's a few of those guys who aren't expected to do as much, but they just all seem so well-drilled yeah. and uh, they're in sync in the way that they need to help each other out, as you were talking about there. I think so, I think a lot of Kets fans would agree with that. So I guess that's one thing. And just compared to last year, I suppose they are trying to go a little bit quicker. Like, they're still controlling it, but... When there's the option open, they are taking the sort of angled kick to open it up a little bit and moving it in a, a bit quicker. So not quite as stagnant as last year, perhaps. And when they do speed it up, I that's I like watching them when they speed it up. But it is those, uh, it, it you know you got to pick your moments, I guess. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, and I think as well as that, alluding to what you were saying before, they are an extremely experienced bunch of players and. They've been there, done it. They know what to do in certain situations. They don't have to wait till a break to get the message from the coach. They can change it in-game. They can, uh, you know, read the ebbs and flows and understand what they need to do at different times. So I think that's a real strength that not a lot of teams have. No. And it's only enhanced when you bring someone like Isaac Smith in who had a lot of that as well in his career. Um, Alistair Clarkson was very big on situational training and, you know, there's two minutes left on the clock. What are we doing here? You know, this kind of thing. So, yeah, it's only strengthened with some of the guys they brought in. All right, let's jump into the third quarter now. So it was actually Bruce who managed to kick the first two goals of the quarter for the Bulldogs. One, receiving out the back from 
sort of the last catch defender and running towards goal from about 40 out near the boundary. Managed to nail that one. Beautiful kick, that one. And he also contested well pretty deep to get the handball off to give the Bulldogs a second goal there. So they came out firing after the halftime break here. It was actually the Bulldogs who continued to make the running throughout the quarter. But the Cats always seemed to find an answering goal pretty quickly, whether it be out of the centre bounce or just in general play, not too long after. And they did this with 30 seconds remaining on the clock, where they were able to control the ball well, bring it through the centre, then getting it deep into Hawkins, who uh, took a contested mark and was able to hand off to Radiglier in the square, who got it through very easily. And that gave the Cats a two-point lead going to three-quarter time. So, obviously very delicately poised here. What did you think was going to decide the game going into the last quarter here, Johnny? Oh, it was literally a coin flip, I think, going into three-quarter time. And uh, I didn't feel like there were going to be a lot of goals. Um, but it was pretty much going to be, yeah, who had the fresher legs in the end, I think. Um, you know, cold night and down in Geelong. Yeah, it was just, yeah, I you just felt it was going to go into the war. So I probably should mention that this was actually the first game that there was actually some crowd allowed back after the COVID outbreak in Melbourne. And uh, some of those restrictions also extended out to regional Victoria. So I think they let 7,000 or so into this game. They had them all on one side of the ground. And they were making a fair bit of noise as well. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was great to see, actually, yeah. Yeah, so as you described, there's a bit of a coin flip going into this last quarter. Definitely up for grabs. And uh, let's see what happens next, eh? Yeah. So it was actually an end-to-end goal, finishing with Jeremy Cameron winning a foot race in the square to give Geelong the first goal of the quarter. But this was answered by an unlikely source when Caleb Daniel was able to nail a set shot from 45 out wasn't a whole lot of scoring, as you alluded to as well there, Johnny. But uh, with less than five minutes left, Dangerfield was actually able to get it in deep to Managola, who was able to take a good contested mark. He's actually a really good contested mark for a midfielder. Yeah, yeah very and good in the air. He was able to go back and give the Cats a five-point lead. And this was actually the 11th lead change of the night. And it was very soon to be the 12th as... The Bulldogs found the answering goal with a McLean dribbler that managed to evade a number of players between him and the goals to give the Dogs the slenderest of leads, a one-point margin. Yeah, they were all great goals, weren't they? (laughs) Yeah, this last quarter was uh, edgy-seat stuff, that's for sure. Oh, yeah. So the Dogs managed to hold on to that one-point lead right up to the final minute where we come to this last play. So the Cats managed to get it on the wing and Dangerfield kicked it in long, but the Dogs were able to clear pretty easily. They could get it only to about centre wing though, and all that was there was a couple of Geelong players who'd run off their men because they knew that, uh, you know, there was no point hanging around in defence. You needed to try and win the game being down. So it was actually Guthrie and Smith who were able to combine on the wing and get the ball back inside 50. And it was actually Smith who found Rowan, who marked strongly, 45 out, about eight metres in from the boundary. 
So as the seconds ticked down, the siren went, and the equation was pretty simple here. Point to draw or a goal to win. It was a pretty tricky kick. Yeah, no, not easy at all, and it's not an easy pocket down there or the flank down there at uh, GMHBA Stadium. So, yeah, the pressure was on his shoulders. He looked pretty confident as he went back and he trotted in. He looked calm. Got, got the ball up there, and uh, it looked like it might just be swinging to the right-hand side, but it tended to draw back and, uh, yeah, went through the middle. I think... <laughs> I think um, a lot of Geelong fans, for maybe a split second when the ball came off his boot, thought, oh, no, out on the full, just for a split second, just for a very <laughs> split second. But some great draw on that. Um, <laughs> it didn't actually look too bad off the boot. It didn't. Like, it like was, you knew he was going to score, I think, yeah. Yeah, it, it was kind of heading towards the right-hand goalpost, but it just came back, as it sometimes yeah. does, you know, with the right footer. It just swings back a little bit. So. Oh, absolutely. But just like the, the pessimist of the supporter watching in that moment, <laughs> you know what I mean? I know I would what I'd be like. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So the 7,000 fans there, obviously enjoyed that immensely, as many Geelong fans would be in their living room. So it's always great to get up by a point, and in particular, <laughs> if you can do it after the siren as well. So a fantastic game with the best possible uh, final shot there. For a very difficult shot, really. Really great scenes. I thought it was a really good sort of, I guess for a neutral, just a feel-good moment. Um, yeah, as you said before, first game with fans again and, uh, yeah, they were. They had a real treat. So it was, yeah, really, yeah, just a nice classic example of a you know classic game of footy. Gary Rowan, I'm not sure whether it's always been the case, but he's actually a really good shot goal these days. Yeah, yeah, he is. He is. He's got a nice routine. It's it's nice and sort of fluid. It's it. Yeah, he, I don't know. There's just some players you know that. Um, they're thinking of each kind of aspect of the routine as they're going through. He just seems like it's all one motion. Yeah, it but, seems very yeah. natural. Just yeah. gets in position and just it's very. It's got good flow to it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. All right, so let's pick apart a couple of the threads to come out of this game. So, did the Bulldogs prove that they compete compete with the best teams? Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. I was really impressed with their performance. Uh, as you said, not many teams go down there and get close, let alone be in front at the final siren and nearly win the game. Uh, I, I, no, I thought they actually, yeah, they raised their colours a bit because um, yeah, we weren't sure. They had a few interesting games in the, in, in recent times. I think, uh, yeah, obviously, the Richmond performance and then against Melbourne. and We weren't sure if they it was just a couple of question marks over the, whether their style would hold up against the really good teams, but I think they proved that it did. And, um, yeah, I think this could easily be a grand final preview. Yeah, definitely right up there. They're still sitting second on the ladder. One interesting stat that's come out, though, the last six weeks, uh, the Bulldogs have actually fallen off in uh, their contested possession differential and also their scores from clearance, which mm. was... They were clearly the best side in the first sort of six or seven weeks in those stats. So I guess some of those injuries... With Dunkley uh, and Trelaw, yeah. Yeah, Dunkley and Trelaw, probably taking away that strength a little bit. But uh, I guess a game like this shows that they can sort of grind it out as well. So that would give Bulldog supporters a lot of heart that even 
those some of those uh, that midfield strength is taken away, they're still able to compete at this level. Yep, absolutely. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing them again after that performance. Uh, yeah, I think they'll be right right in it. So when a game's decided by a single point, you could probably make a case for either team being the deserving winners. But who do you reckon deserved to win this game? Uh, Did the right team win? Man, look, look, I. I think Geelong deserve to win, definitely, but uh, I don't think the Bulldogs deserve to lose. Um, yeah, that, they really that, that, they brought a. I think for the most part they brought a four quarter effort. There was you know there was obviously ebbs and flows with the momentum, but um they, they were right in it. They didn't do a lot wrong, uh, even on that last play. I don't think their defending was all that wrong, to be honest. Um, maybe they could have held it a bit in the in their sort of forward half when there was a chance to maybe just force another stoppage but um yeah i think if it, it was it was a hard one it was a hard one to take i think to lose that one yeah absolutely so just going back to that last play there was something the Geelong players talked about after the game the fact that uh essentially they left i think two or three bulldogs players in their defensive 50 by themselves to come out and compete on the wing there to actually start that last play with Guthrie and Smith. So because they knew they were down, you know, they just had to make every chance to actually get it back the other way. So they were willing to take that risk that, you know, the Bulldogs get it through, but you're giving yourself a much better chance. So I think that's another mark that, you know, this is a very experienced team that they can actually pick the right moment to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And it's, yeah, it's just um, it, it's why I kind of find it a bit I couldn't totally uh, buy into that whole controlled style earlier in the year and when when it was uh, the talk of the town it was oh just Geelong just, t- just moving it too slow their control I knew that I always feel like there's something more to them there's like they can speed it up a bit they can take the risks so I, I'm not having any of that that they're just a boring team that you know plays slow unattractive footy so yeah. All right, last question. What team presents the biggest challenge to Geelong at the moment? Or if, you know, possible finals matchups as a Geelong supporter or, you know, anyone who has a vested interest in Geelong, who would you be fearing or what type of team do you think could give Geelong the most problems? This is a, a real tough one, actually. Because, um, yeah, look, there's... There's some good teams out there that on their day could really give anyone troubles, I guess. But um, in Geelong's case, I think, and it's it's been the last couple of years, I think, their one weakness does seem to be when they come up against a side that has some really good ball users and, um, yeah, just damaging players. So, uh, so I kind of feel like a Brisbane would be one that could give them a bit of trouble. Uh, you know, guys like Zorko and, um, you know, McCluggage and that. I, I, I don't, Geelong never really seemed to have the complete lockdown player. That, that is, I mean, O'Connor's done some good jobs lately, but uh, I, in recent times, I just find that they do seem to, those players seem to do kind of well against Geelong and get a surprise win every now and then. So I'd look at someone like a Brisbane um yeah, that that was just off the top of my head, I guess. Sure. For sure. some reason, Brisbane's just sticking in my head. Personally, I think 
the best way to beat Geelong, or at least make things very difficult for them, is just to put on as much pressure as possible. Yep. So take away their you know outlets. Don't let them play their kick mark style. And I know we've talked about the fact that they can move it a bit more quickly now, but you know if you're making it hard for them through the midfield with that pressure and depriving them of those outlet kicks, I think we've seen in the past few years that that's when Geelong is at their most vulnerable. So I guess probably the two teams that come to mind as being able to put on the most pressure, uh, you know, perhaps in a big game or a final, it's probably Melbourne and Richmond. That's my thinking there. Yeah, no, fair enough. And it is a case of, um, yeah, forcing them to not play their controlled style, but also um, forcing them to kick long down the line to a contest. And yeah, that's something that they probably don't want to be doing often as well. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, well, that was a really interesting game to dive into there, but uh, we've got another couple of topics to have a bit of a chat about. So this has been one I've been wanting to get to for a while, but uh, hmm. just haven't. <laughs> we've had too much else to talk about, I suppose, but yeah. this is a good one with the buy round and not a huge number of topics. But uh, the question is, what's the difference between having the momentum and being in control in a game? Mm. We always hear this, oh, they've got the momentum. Yeah. But what does it actually mean? Is is there a difference between having the momentum and being in control? Yeah. Or, like, yeah, what's the, going on here? It's a really good question. I, I like these sort of food for thought questions. Um, when I think of momentum, I, I definitely, I always link momentum to confidence when the confidence is up collectively in the team and um, and everyone's sort of starting to get into their stride. And it's, it's that kind of moment where everyone starts giving that extra 5% as well. Um, so that's, yeah, I would say, the, but the momentum can change as well and it's hard to keep consistent and maintain. Um, control, I don't think you have to be, well, look, you have to be mentally disciplined, but I don't think you have to be mentally up like when you've got momentum. Um yeah, that's, I know that's probably a really, it's not really a, a good answer, but uh, that's the main, the main difference I think is momentum is linked to confidence, control is probably linked more to system and just um, following directives. Okay, interesting. When I think of momentum, you think of, you know, the team getting a run on, so they might win a few 50-50 contests, they might be getting a whole bunch of inside 50s in a row. Mm. They might be getting the rub of the green. The umpire, just everything starts to seems to start going their way for yes. whatever reason. Yeah. And, yeah, I can see how that would, uh, you know, help the confidence as well. But it's a very fickle thing, momentum, isn't it? Like, it can yes. change yeah. on a dime almost. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and control, I guess, maybe more to do with time. It might just be you, you start trying to manage time and you're slowing the game down or you, you want to speed it up. And yeah, like it's, it's, it, it just, I think it's just a different, it's a different mindset. So I guess that's probably another thing with the momentum. It is sort of time-based. You can't have the momentum forever. No. If you have momentum no. forever, that's just your performance. <laughs> yeah. So is there, is there a time limit on how long you can actually have the momentum for? Um, because, like, you, you know how you get, like, ebbs and flows in a quarter. You don't – you very, very rarely see one team absolutely dominate 
the yeah. quarter from start to finish. So there must happen. be some sort of time limit. I, I guess the time limit is until the other team gets their momentum. <laughs> that, that's pretty much it. I mean, there's no monopoly on momentum. Like if if you have it until someone else takes it, pretty much. So what can actually swing the momentum then or change the momentum if one team has it and we're saying, you know, it doesn't last forever, but what actually can switch it around? Or is it just one of those things where something random happens and then, you know, the other team just sort of starts, things just start going in their way a little? I think the random things definitely play a part. So, you know, those moments where, say... Uh, there was someone kicks a goal and then someone and they shove them over and you know one of those situations where the umpire gives them another kick and they get a double goal. Uh, yeah, I find yeah. those seem, those always seem to really shift momentum. Um, big big bumps, big um, like acts of courage. I think are, like really spur the team on. But I do think it comes back to the to mental mental state and um, and just the, the team seeing other guys do things and they're like oh he's doing it so I you know. It's, it's like an adrenaline thing. I, I've got to, I've got to get involved now. I've got to start getting, you know, upping my game. And yeah, I, it's yeah, it's, it's a really interesting subject. But um, I guess was... the last quarter is one place where you often do see one team just completely sort of obliterate the other team. So that's probably where the momentum can have the biggest effect. Where you know one team just sort of starts getting the run on and the other team might be tiring a little bit. That's yeah. probably one position where it's the most obvious, like yeah. discre- what a discrepancy it's actually going to create. Yeah, the fatigue definitely plays a big part in it. But um, I, I definitely, yeah, I think it all starts with the, with the mind and, um, and belief. If, if, you know, how many times do we see a team come back in a game from, you know, what, six goals down and... Uh, yeah, it's it's like you just you can almost feel the belief around like around the ground with all with the players and they're just they're getting up and about, they're getting around their teammates more. It's yeah, yeah. yeah it's it's contagious. It's contagious. So is it possible to have a game where neither team has the momentum for a long period of time, or is that just not possible? I think it's it's probably possible. I mean, especially when you have uh when there's a really good um when there's good strategies by the coaches set up to really negate the opposition a lot and maybe weather weather plays a big part sometimes hard to sort of get your game going um but i think there's usually patches in a game where you have you you have a good spell yeah so i guess going back to that cats dogs game we just looked at there you'd probably say in that first quarter that neither team really had the momentum it was a bit of a slog yeah and then in the second quarter it kind of swung so Bulldogs got the run on, they had the momentum, and then Geelong got it back late. So, yeah, I guess there's just different ways of, uh, you know, separating what's happening in different parts of the game. Yeah, absolutely. But, yeah, once you have it, you've got to be consistent with it because, yeah, it can be hard to get back. Yeah, and I guess one other thing is that you need, you always hear the commentators say this, you've got to make the most of your momentum because if you don't score enough when you've got the momentum, you know the other team's going to have some chances at least to turn with the momentum. And if they, you know, make better use of that momentum than you do, then you might be in a bit of trouble. Yep. And as we say all the time, it's a two-team sport. <laughs> you know, you're not playing against yourself and your own momentum. <laughs> yeah. 
kind of have it all your own way. Mm. All right, next topic I've got here is talking about how it's possible in the AFL for teams to actually go up and down the ladder quite drastically from year to year. So obviously there's some teams that sort of are often high or often low, but it's not unusual for a team to sort of fluctuate sort of anywhere between, you know, eight to ten spots on the ladder. So, yeah, why do you think it is possible in the AFL to get these sort of wild swings from season to season? Yeah, it's definitely not unusual. It happens very often. I mean, yeah, I mean, look at St Kilda this year. It's it's, it's really, it's a good question. I mean, I think the first thing you go to is injuries. Uh, If you get enough injuries early in the season, then that's you're behind the eight ball that's a real tough spot to to sort of mount a comeback from but i think i think the start having a good start to the season is really important as well i mean i i don't i think if you if you don't come out of those first five games at least two and three or at very worst then you're yeah you really just you're playing from behind and it's I I'm, I don't know about you Dan but I'm kind of finding that we're only really halfway through the season and it still feels weird that we're putting a line through so many teams at the moment and talking about oh well you know they've just got to start you know playing some of these guys and these kids and you know give themselves the best shot for next year or whatever it, I feel like that shouldn't happen until about you know maybe a th- three quarters maybe two thirds of the way into the season but. That's just that's the way it is, and we talked about having a shorter season last week potentially. So, yeah, but yeah, I think the the first thing I'd look at is definitely the injuries. I, 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 most of those teams would have been affected by injury in some shape or form. I would say. Yeah, I guess one other thing that could be playing a part here is the uneven fixture. So, essentially, yeah. depending on where the teams finished on the ladder the previous year, you're in the bracket of six and you play more of that bracket of six the next year. So, for example, if you're finishing in the bottom six and you're an improving team, it should actually be easier for you to finish in the eight than a team coming from either of those top two brackets. So I think that's another contributing factor here. So the draw is a big a big factor? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like It could be the difference between you know one or two games and often... The eight is decided by you know a game or percentage, yeah. so it could make the difference. Yeah, that's definitely something. For sure, for sure. All right, last one for today. After eleven years in the competition, is it time to concede that the Gold Coast Suns are a failed experiment? There's a lot been a lot of talk about this uh, lately, particularly with uh, more games being played in Tassie with. Uh, the COVID problems in Melbourne, and yeah, they got a really good crowd to that Essendon uh, Hawthorne game on the weekend, and uh, yeah, I guess the commentators were talking about the fact that you know it felt like a proper footy game uh, that you would get at uh, you know a proper footy state that perhaps you're not really getting when you play a game at Metricon with the mm. Suns. Yeah, um, yeah, like it's it's <laughs> yeah. It's not a happy thing to say, really, because they have sort of pumped a lot of time and funds into this whole project. But um, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say it's failed just yet. But 
the, the there is a clock and it is ticking and it's getting closer to the time bomb part of it. So um, because there's a lot of people that also just think, oh, but it'll happen eventually. It'll happen eventually. You know, for the Suns, they've got a good young list and all that. Th- they've tried a lot of things and they've tried, you know, I guess the first coach guy McKenna. They tried. He was a good up and comer, assistant, ready for his chance. Didn't quite work out. Then they tried the veteran Rocket. Didn't quite work out. Going again with the you know ready-made assistant who was ready, Stuart Jew. I, I, I think Stuart can coach, but you know he might be a victim of some circumstances here. And, and now they're starting to talk about a lot of the um, media I'm hearing is starting to say, oh, they need an experienced coach again. They need someone who can guide them. They need maybe they should give Nathan Buckley a call. You know, and it's the, it's going around and around in circles. Uh, you know, the, the, some of their best players in their I think they did a team of the team of the decade a few weeks ago, and it's kind of depressing because they've all just moved on and you know doing bigger and better things. Um, yeah, so it's it's it. I would still give them another couple of seasons, but um, something is definitely missing. It's not really a destination club at all. Um, it's a great footy stadium, but it's not that ex- It's not that accessible, really. Um, by transport and things like that. Um, I'm not sure if you have, you... have you been, Dan? I know you spent a bit of time in Queensland. Yeah, yeah. I lived yeah. up in Brisbane for five years. And yeah. I think I got to Metricon three or four times. I guess, yeah, it's a great stadium, as you described. And being able to go to the beach and the footy on the same day yeah, nice, is a nice, nice experience. But uh, the thing I noticed most when I was there was always the Melbourne games. I think I might have gone to one other game. Yeah. But... There was more of the opposition supporters than there were Gold Coast supporters every time I was there without fail. Really? So, and I did actually check this earlier in the week as well. So I think this was actually last year's figures. So I'm not sure what it is this year, but Gold Coast has roughly 15,000 members. And I think they're getting, you know, somewhere between five and 7,000 to their games. And you compare that to GWS, they've got 30,000 members in 2020. So wow. huge difference. Yeah. So, would you say that even if they were trying to give away tickets to the games, they would have struggled doing that? I think so. Yeah. yeah. Wow. There's just there's just not a lot of appetite for sport on the Gold Coast. And I know no. they would say, you know, it's a growth region and, you know, all these sorts of things. But to me, putting a second team in Queensland was a bit arrogant of the AFL. Yeah. Like, it's an enough. absolutely rusted on rugby league state. Yep. And it's got nowhere near the size of the population that Sydney or Melbourne has. So to think that they could, you know, come in here with an AFL team and put a team here where so many other codes, more popular codes, like soccer and rugby, have actually had heaps of problems, to me it just seems a little bit arrogant yeah. to think that they could succeed where all these other ones have failed. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Because um, I know I've heard all these things before that there's a very small following but very passionate following of, of footy in, in the Carrara area, but that's probably at the level of, say, like a VFL club or something, isn't it? Or, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's a hard thing to build up a supporter base, especially in a non-traditional football state. And, you know, GWS have done it extremely well but as i alluded to already like sydney's got a much larger population it just seems crazy when you've got other places in australia 
like Tassie is the obvious example that, you know, it's actually a football state and, uh, you know, there's people who actually, you know, connect with it in a way that a lot of people in Queensland just don't. So, and and I, I know Tassie has a relatively small population, but They'd be getting more than 7,000 to their games, I'll tell you that much. There's no doubt about that. Um, I think, yeah, the only real um, concern, I guess, with Tassie is just um, that the population is being split between those two main cities. And if they could, if there was a bit more of an obvious base for them, then it'd be a no-brainer. But, yeah, it's like they're making a good case. Like year by year, they're definitely making a, a better case. Yeah, so I guess, you know, in 10 years' time, what's the AFL going to look like? I think, personally, I think 18 teams is the absolute maximum. Same here. Like, the amount of money the AFL has to pour in to a lot of the teams just to keep them viable, more than 18 seems pretty crazy. So Uh, if you are going to get a new team anywhere else, it's really probably going to have to come at the expense of one of the existing teams. That's my opinion, at least. Yeah, I totally agree. Totally agree. So I guess the obvious question is then, will the Gold Coast Suns exist in 2030? 2030? Oh, gee. <laughs> uh. Oh, wow, wow, wow. It's really hard to make a case for that, isn't it? It's it's hard to say yes and not feel like you're lying through your teeth. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I guess the only thing is if they don't exist, there's going to be a team somewhere else. So, yeah. you know. I don't think they're going to keep the 18 teams for, oh, for sure. as long as they for can, sure. I think. So, but it just, yeah, it's just whether it's that 18th team still Gold Coast or is it, you know, the, the Tassie Devils. The only <laughs> thing the only thing that's going to help Gold Coast now is results. It's plain and simple. Like, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, we went through a few different scenarios there with Gold Coast. Hopefully, uh, you know they can start improving and yes, we want those, them to do sorts it. Of things, but uh, you know, it's just one of those things. It's always going to be a story until uh, they at least reach the level of you know success that GWS has had in terms of actually you know building a new football club, which yep. they start they've started a long way behind the eight ball and still a lot of work to do there. And it wasn't easy for the Giants either. It's taken a lot of time, but uh, it's starting to bear some fruit. Absolutely. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode of Footy Time. Thanks again for sharing your views here, Johnny. No worries, Dan. And thanks to you guys as well for listening. So remember, we do have uh, the weekend release now. Uh, it comes out just before the weekend's game. So that's our It's Really Footy Time edition, uh, previewing a little bit of the weekend action, mostly focusing on some interesting true or falses and uh, diving in a little bit deeper into some of those. So do join us for that as well. Until next time, see you later. (laughs)